Morning, church. Steve, Amy Porter, didn't they do a great job this morning leading us? One of the things I I like about, uh, well, let me put it this way, I like variety. And I am so glad God has gifted us with so many people who can worship the Lord and lead our congregation in worship. I like the variety. I don't know about you, but uh, yeah, I think it's healthy. I think it's good. Uh, And so praise God. Praise God. I'm very grateful for our children. This was a, a week of children for me as well as we welcomed our fifth grandchild into the world. There's Anderson John. Blop. So, five kids and five grandkids. And time marches on, doesn't it? So fast. But we're grateful to the Lord for healthy delivery and everyone's doing well and God is blessing our congregation with babies and uh, that's a good thing. That's a real good thing. Well, here we are in July. Uh, As Liz mentioned, back in January, we started our year, as I think we should start our year, by focusing on prayer. And we did the Awake 21 Days of Prayer and Fasting. And as a part of that, uh, we had a prayer walk right in this room on a Sunday evening. Now, of course, back in January, it was a little cooler than it is right now. Uh, But it's lovely out today, isn't it? Yeah, thank the Lord for that. And as a part of that prayer walk, uh, we wanted to uh, help identify those things that are hindering us and holding us back from serving the Lord fully. And at the first station, there was a checklist of sins. And and, uh, those who came through uh, anonymously checked uh, which sins they were dealing with or wrote in those things that they were struggling with and then symbolically uh, tacked them to the cross, which was located about right here. And after that service, we collected all the papers. And uh, again, they were anonymous. Uh, But we compiled the list of sins that this congregation is struggling with. And that became the basis for the next few weeks. And uh, I know that as pastors and elders of this church, we want to scratch where you are itching. And this congregation has spoken as to the kinds of things uh, that we're wrestling with that are common to all of us. And, And understand that they're common to all of us. And so that's the basis of this new series called My Favorite Sins because as a congregation, these are our favorite sins. And we want to see victory come in those areas of our life that many of us wrestle with. So you're not alone. Uh, We're going to do this together, and I think it'll be a good look at God's Word. I really do. So today we begin the series with one of the top sins. Survey says, judging others. That was right there at the top of the list, judging others others hmm hmm the world wants us all to get along stop judging each other people shouldn't judge each other hmm planet fitness has spun this concept into their marketing i find this well honestly kind of humorous but more hypocritical than anything else and uh, planet fitness is a workout chain and uh, they have, as a part of their marketing, welcome to the judgment-free zone. This is, this is on their walls. It's in their, all their brochures and all their advertising. And it's an interesting concept that we can work out and we can uh, do this in a judgment-free environment. And no matter what shape you're in or not in, you're welcome here. The reason I find this humorous and even more hypocritical uh, is this. And you may not be able to see this clearly, but it says, this is a Planet Fitness, again, uh, dress code, no jeans, no do-rags, no skull caps, no bandanas, no boots, and no sandals. And the bottom line says, all subject to our judgment. <laughs> huh. A little bit of judgment in the judgment-free zone, eh? How's that working for you? All subject to our judgment in the judgment-free zone. Well, more importantly, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Word of God say about this? So you're going to have to think with me because I'm going to challenge you this morning. Let's start by defining the word judge, judgment, in the noun form. 
Uh, and we talk here at Southside a lot about having a common language because a different word can mean something different to different people at different places at different times. So we must define words coming up with a common language to our culture here as a church at Southside. So we look at the word judge, judge, krino in Greek. Yeah, it's a very simple word. It means to decide or distinguish good from evil, judge. To decide or distinguish good from evil. That's a pretty basic definition, wouldn't you agree? Okay, so we're all starting from the same point. This is how we're going to use the word. Nice start, but you know what? Sometimes I get confused because the Bible seems to contradict itself by what it says. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Can anyone put these two verses together and make sense of them? That's what I'm asking you. And there are a lot of people sitting here with vast knowledge of Scripture, deep spiritual insights, so you can straighten me out on this, okay? Let's look at a couple of those verses. John 3, 17. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. That sounds pretty good, don't you think? God sent his Son not to judge depending on your translation, or condemn the world, but to save the world. Wasn't Jesus' mission the exact opposite of judgment according to that verse? You can nod. Mm-hmm. Sounds pretty good to me. Why then did Jesus say in John nine thirty nine, for judgment I have come into this world? Why did he say that? If he was not sent to judge the world, why would he turn right around and say, for judgment I have come into the world? And also in the book of John, and the Father, Jesus speaking, judges no one but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So did Jesus come to judge the world or not? Okay, this is your chance to straighten me out on this. What does the Bible say? That's all I'm asking. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into the world. Is that a contradiction? Certainly sounds like one to me. Okay, so kind of at the end you get judged if you deny him. So once you reject God, then you, he judges you. Okay? Oh, this is so much fun. <laughs> so what's the truth? Come on. Somebody else. Take a crack at her. A different basis. He took our judgment upon himself. But will you not stand before the Lord and be judged by him? Yes, you will. Every person in this room will be judged by the one who has been trusted with all judgment. Okay? So keep going. But the Father is not going to judge anyone. He's entrusted all that to the Son. Right? So he is the judge. You're getting closer. Christopher. getting closer. He's going to distinguish good from evil, those who love him and those who don't. I like that thought. One more crack, Adam? Uh, well, even judges have to show themselves approved, so part of his mission on earth was to show himself approved. To be the judge. Correct. Okay. And he did that where? Well, I mean, it's, it's uh, through growing up, but it started when he was going through the desert and the temptations there. Okay. And it ended finally with? The cross. Correct. 
correct. Good, good. You guys are, this is good, because I, I, I'm going to tinker with your brain a little more here, because I think as Jesus followers, we have to be able to answer these kinds of questions. Anytime I give you a verse of Scripture, what must you do in order to understand it? You put it in its proper context. Hello. Do not let anyone take a verse or a part of a verse and challenge you with that being truth unless it's put in its proper context. Context gives its true meaning. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say if you take a verse or a part of a passage of Scripture and spin it the way you want to spin it. Be careful. Be careful. So let's start with that first passage of Scripture. In John 3, 17, who is Jesus speaking to? John chapter 3, who is Jesus speaking to? Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? A Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, a high-ranking Jewish official who believed the Messiah was sent to judge the world. He believed the Messiah was sent to judge those nations who were opposing Israel, to exalt the nation of Israel, and to wipe out all of Israel's enemies. He was coming as a conquering king. Jesus begins to straighten out his theology by saying, I'm not coming the way you think I'm coming. I'm coming as a suffering servant. He begins to unpackage that thought. So he's talking to an individual who believed Jesus was sent to judge the world. He's correcting his thinking at that moment. The Father did not send the Son to judge the world. His mission was to rescue the world, to rescue you and me from our sin. Would we agree with that? So we put this verse in its proper context The primary purpose of Jesus' coming was to pay the price for your sin and my sin. Now, ultimately, he will judge. But understand, as Christopher said, some will believe and others won't. Some will embrace him as Savior. Others will stand before him at the great white throne and receive judgment for everything they have done in the body, whether good or bad. But they've missed the point with their life. Where are you? Do you know him as your savior, or will you face him as your judge? That's a choice for everyone in this room right now. Who is he? Who is Jesus? And why was he sent? Who knows John 3.16? Gary? Gary? Good. And then comes John 3, 17. For God so what the world? Not condemning the world. He loves the world. Who is the world? You, the person next to you, the guy in his underwear out in the front yard this morning? Yeah, we're all there. All of us are there. Do you understand a little bit better now how you take those verses? And we need to be very careful about what we do and put them in their proper context. All right? So I get that, but I'm still confused. What about us? What about us as Jesus' fathers? Are we supposed to judge others or not? I get this all the time. We're not supposed to judge other people. Really? What does the Bible say? Huh. So put these two verses together for me, will you? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not judge others and you will not be judged. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church. Are we supposed to judge or not? Judge their fruit. We're supposed to be fruit inspectors, okay? So I judge their fruit. So what? They'll know us by our fruit. I agree with that. But aren't you judging them? Accountability. Accountability. I like that word. But people said, don't judge anybody. Don't judge. We're not here to judge. Really? You sure about that? What does the Bible say? Do not judge others, Jesus said. Paul said, it is certainly your responsibility to judge, which is right. 
What do we have to do with these verses? Put them in their proper context. Absolutely. Let's start with the first one. Do not judge others and you will not be judged, Jesus said, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Hmm. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, ah, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hmm. Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Understand, in context, this passage doesn't say don't judge. It says when you do judge, make sure it's done correctly according to the Word of God. Hmm. So what's correctly? Here's what Paul would say in Galatians 6. One, dear brothers and sisters, if in, in other believers overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back in onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. That goes back to accountability, right? Goes right back to accountability. So are we supposed to judge? Let's look at the second. And we'll put these two together. Paul says, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even the pagans don't do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning and sorrow and shame, and you should remove this man from your fellowship. Sounds rather judgmental, doesn't it? Hmm. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin, but I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people or worship idols. You'd have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. Sounds rather judgmental to me. Hmm. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it is certainly your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. So what do we get from this passage of scripture? Very vital and crucial. Jesus' followers are never, never to judge or sit in judgment of those on the outside. What does it mean to be on the outside? Like, Outside of the walls of the church? Non-believers. Non-believers. Hold on to that thought, because we're coming back to it. What are we supposed to do when non-believers act this way? What's our response? Love them. Well, that's hard to do. If the guy's in his underwear... Sounds like a good Sunday morning to me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to pray for them, the Bible says. We're supposed to love them, to live out, to share our faith with them. They're acting the only way they can act because they're controlled by the sin nature, correct? They can't act any other way. And I was once like that, not that long ago. Right? Now I have a choice at least. It is not our role or responsibility to judge their actions, but to offer them hope and a different way to live their lives, free from the captivity. God will judge those on the outside. We are not the Holy Spirit. We are not the Holy Spirit. God will judge those on the outside. Let God do what God does, right? However, we do have the obligation to judge those inside the church who are sinning. Now, if we look carefully at this letter, this is what kind of gets me. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians carefully, you'll find that this church, this church, the church in Corinth, had people in the church who practiced all of the sins that Paul listed. There was sexual sin. They were greedy. They worshiped idols. They were abusive, drunkards at the communion table. They cheat people. They were all there in the church in Corinth. What are we supposed to do now? They're not on the outside, they're on the inside. What do we do? How do we handle it? Hmm. Understand, every person here, me, we are capable of the worst sins. All of us do sin. What's the difference between those on the outside 
and those who follow Jesus. It's one word. It starts with R, ends with T. R-E-P. We repent. We repent. We are convicted by the Holy Spirit that this is wrong, and we turn from that sin. We turn toward God for the strength not to do that. We find forgiveness in him. Those on the outside don't do that. And they will one day be judged because they are set then in their sin. We, though, have the responsibility, and this is where church discipline comes in. It gets sticky. It gets messy. Have I expelled people from the church before? Yes, I have. Because as a gatekeeper, I'm responsible before the Lord to make sure that if there is unrepentant, open public sin, that that has to be dealt with publicly. Now understand, all of us sin. All of us sin. Some refuse to repent. And if they call themselves a Jesus follower and refuse to repent, then we as church leaders have to take public action against them to make sure that we are protecting the body of Christ. Very, very necessary. Because, as Paul would say, just a little bit of yeast is going to destroy the whole loaf, and it will spread. So there is a standard here. Now, we are not judging them in the sense that the world judges just because they act differently or look differently or talk differently. That's not at all what I'm talking about. Now, understand, those who aren't Jesus' followers often accuse the church, that's us, of being judgmental and hypocritical. I often think they have a valid point. Do you? According to Barna Group, among young people who don't go to church, 87% say they see Christians as judgmental and 85% see us as hypocritical. That hurts me. Almost 9 out of 10 who don't attend church say church is judgmental. Hmm. Let's check this video out. I think this kind of personalizes it. a very large family and it's it's a uh, it's just basically down to it it's there's you know some that are more heavily involved into it and the whole christianity and then i have family members that they don't go to church but they still believe and i'm not saying it's wrong to believe in god you know that's your thing and if it's if it helps get you through the day you know do it but um you know it's the exact opposite for you know me it's like i can't I'll go to a family function. There's people I kind of shy away from because it's all about the self-censorship thing. You know, you can't say a certain thing or you can't think a certain way and you can't voice your opinion because they're going to look down their nose at you and tell you it's not in the Bible to think that way, you know, or certain things. You know, my neighbors are the same way. I pretty much grew up with them and um, their family is very Christian and their son, who is my age, he would sit there in church on Sunday, you know, and, and he'd do the youth group thing and the church camp thing, and then on Monday morning, you know, he's out talking to his drug dealer, you know, and it's just, it's just really sad, you know. It would, I love them so much, but I would love to burst their bubble and just tell them, look, you know, you sit there and tell me that I need to go to church. Well, your son might as well not, you know. He's no better than me just because he sits in church for an hour on Sunday. You know, I don't go to church, and I, as far as I know, <laughs> haven't done drugs, you know, or anything like that. And it's just, um, it's just all about censoring myself, not being able to express myself because I'll be judged for it when really everyone is hypocritical. You know, um, my best friend, she is a Christian. Her grandmother is actually a pastor. And she will sit there and tell me, I will not date a boy who has a tattoo. And, you know, she got pregnant at 16, you know, and her daughter is now two years old. And I just thought, well, isn't it premarital sex, you know, part of your whole thing? You know, you can't do that. Yeah. So it's just, um, it's very annoying. You know, it's like, you're going to sit there and tell me that you're a better person than me because you go talk to God on Sunday when I'm sleeping, you know, it doesn't make you any better than me. And, uh, I wish that more people could see that. It's definitely, it comes down to the whole, I'm being judged. I can't tell a certain joke or say a certain thing because you'll look at me 
down your nose, you know, telling me that I've had aunts and uncles tell me that before, and it, it, it very much closes me off from them. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time with them. <laughs> Hold on a minute. Doesn't the Bible say God is love? Is that true? Yep, and he is. So how do Christians justify this behavior? Well, the real problem, right authors David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, comes when we, and I'm quoting, we recognize God's holiness or his justice but fail to articulate the other side of his character, grace, which is his love. Jesus is both truth and grace. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, embracing truth without including grace leads to this harsh kind of legalism. On the other hand, grace without truth dissolves into compromise. So kind of put that in formula in your sermon notes like this. Truth minus grace, or truth without grace, is legalism. That is harsh, it's hypocritical. Grace Minus truth, or without truth, is compromise. That's lukewarm, that's lethargic, that's lazy. And what did Jesus say he would do with lukewarm? Spit you out of my mouth. He doesn't like lukewarm, right? Well, it's much easier to end up on one side or the other, either personally or even as a church. We end up on the truth side, we end up on the grace side. The Bible encourages us to embrace this tension because it is the very character and nature of God. His holiness, his justice, his love, and his grace. Both and, right? Not either or. And it's much easier to migrate one way or the other. And many of us in this room sitting here have migrated one way or the other. And we as a church also need to know where we are. But we must wrestle with this the tension it's good it's right it's healthy and we continue to wrestle with it embracing both god's love and his justice now following jesus will grind against a morally ambiguous culture it better but what often fuels the resentment of those who are on the outside looking in at the church is the experience many have had with misguided christians many of us have had when someone hears things like, and I've had this yelled to me, I can remember before I was a believer, the Bible says you're a terrible sinner and you're going to hell if you don't repent and convert. <laughs> Did that win me over? Ooh, not hardly. They're hearing exclusively about God's justice. That's a message of God's justice. It is true in and of itself, and yet just as we learn, justice is only a part of the equation. It's only a part of the equation. God's love is equally and it's important, right, Jen? Is that right? Back in May, Jen Velboom sent me this email. Email. I'm about halfway through reading a book I picked up from the library, and I wanted to tell you about it. This might actually be the single most powerful and convicting book, apart from the Bible, obviously, I have ever picked up. The book is called Unchristian by David Kinnaman. This book really speaks to me. Before I gave my life to Christ, I would have absolutely agreed with all the negative thoughts the outsiders from this study had about the church. In a lot of ways, I'm still acutely aware of all of it, and it hurts my heart to see the damage Christ followers are doing to other people in the name of religion. This book is lighting a fire for me right now. So if you send me an email like that, first thing I'm going to do is say, how about sharing that with all of us, Jen? If something's fired you up, I think God wants to use you to fire the rest of us up because it fires me up. And that's true for all of us. If God's doing something in your life, man, let us know. Not that you'll have to end up here, right, Charles? But if God's doing something, we, we want to hear it. Not from me, I just got the big mouth. We want to hear it from people that usually aren't up here because they have something to say. And I believe the Holy Spirit speaks through them. So, Jen, it's all yours. Okay. Have fun. Okay. Are you nervous? A little bit. Why? I don't know. These are all your friends. They are. Yes. My family. Yeah, this is yeah. your family. And tell us a little bit about your journey. Okay, so before I get started with my story, I just wanted to tell you how much fun I am having as a worship leader in this church. It's kind of a new responsibility for me, and it was really out of my comfort zone when I first started, but I think it's something that's really become comfortable, and I just have all of you to thank for coming along with, my, with me on this journey and really just being an encouragement to me. So, <laughs> thank you. 
So now I'm, today is something new for me again, and it's a little bit out of my comfort zone, and it's definitely a stretch. So if you could all just say a little prayer for me wherever you are as I'm talking this morning, I'd really appreciate it. So my story is a little bit different than what a lot of you probably have experienced. I did not grow up in the church. I was raised what I would say is loosely Catholic, and by loosely I mean we went to church on holidays, and I think that's the story that any former Catholics might be familiar with. We went on Palm Sunday, and we went on Christmas Eve, and we went if we stayed at Grandma's house on Saturday nights because she went to church at 7.30 on Sunday mornings, and we had to go along. So I don't recall ever hearing anyone praying in our home. I don't recall ever seeing a Bible taken out. Uh, Bibles were basically keepsakes for us. We got them for our baptisms and our first communions and our first reconciliation and confirmation, and then they went up on a shelf, and they were used as kind of a keepsake. Nothing really special besides that. Um, But that said, my mom made sure we attended CCD on Wednesday nights, which is Catholic religious education. We did have all of our sacraments on time, and we were confirmed in the church at 16. But for me, there wasn't really ever anything that was special or significant about church. Church, to me, just kind of represented a set of rules that we had to remember, just things to follow. But there was no kind of relationship. There was no kind of connection to God. So not surprisingly, at 16, when I was confirmed in the church, I basically walked out of that building, and I never gave another thought to it. It wasn't important to me anymore. I think at that time of my life, I was what I would have considered agnostic. So basically, if you're not familiar with that term, I definitely knew that there was a higher power up there in the universe somewhere, but I wasn't really interested in finding out who the higher power was or you know, which higher power was right. Take your pick. Through my teens and my early 20s, I didn't really have a whole lot of interaction with Christians but I can tell you that most of the interaction that I did have, or at least the ones that really stick out to me and have made a difference in my early walk, um, were very negative. And I've got a whole lot of stories that I could probably share, but because I don't want to be up here all day boring you, I am just going to share three of them that have really stuck out. The first happened my first year of college. As some of you know, I have a daughter. She just turned 12. And I found out that I was pregnant with her about four weeks into my very first semester of college. My high school sweetheart and I uh, found out we were expecting, and that's really hard at the age of 18. But my second semester of college, right before I was ready to deliver this, would have been maybe April or May, there was a pro-life group on campus. And by pro-life group, I don't mean the peaceful ones who just want to pray with you. I mean the ones that many of you have probably seen who pick on highly populated areas. They have their big color posters of aborted babies. They've got their megaphones, and they are spewing the fire and the brimstone. And on that particular day, I had to be to class, and I couldn't go around these people. There was no way to get there but directly in front of them. And as I am a small person, and many of you have probably seen me pregnant since my youngest is only 18 months old, there is no place for my belly to go but out So I was very noticeably pregnant. I walked past these people, and even though I had chosen life, I had made the right decision for my baby, I still had to listen to them talk about how all women are promiscuous and how all women are going to pay for our sins. And I can still remember, and you can probably hear it a little bit in my voice, just how ashamed and how angry I was to hear the stereotypes that these people were sharing and just the pure judgment and hatred that was coming out of their mouths. So my second story comes probably about two years later, I'd say. Like many of you, in high school and college, I worked at a fast food restaurant. I worked at Hardee's. And there was one night in particular, the supper rush was done. Things were pretty slow, not much going on. And this very sweet-looking older woman walked in, and she ordered her food, and then as she was waiting, she asked us if she could show us something. And I mean, sure, why not? So she pulls out of her bag this beautiful stuffed bear with an embroidered dress, and she showed us that it wound up, and it played the song, Jesus Loves Me. 
And I thought that was pretty cool. I was even actually kind of contemplating getting one for Maya at the time. But the problem was, as I'm holding this bear in my hands, suddenly she began talking about how God judges sinners and how specifically homosexuals are going to burn in hell. I shut down completely at that point. I handed her back the bear, and I remember just walking away to wait for her order. I had no interest whatsoever in hearing anything that she had to say at that point. And basically what it comes down to for me was that what she was sharing with her mouth was completely opposite of the message she was trying to convey with that bear. I still remember how completely opposite those messages were. So if we fast forward one more year, I've got one more story. At the time, I was engaged. I had been engaged for about a year and a half, seeing this person for about two years. And I had never made any kind of secret over the fact that I was not a Christian or that I didn't really know what I believed. And that had never been a problem prior to this. But two years into the relationship, my fiancé said, you know, I really think it's a problem that you're not a Christian. I think it's a really big problem that you don't go to church and we need to go to church or, you know, basically this is over. And then he told me that if I wouldn't do those things, then I was a heathen were the words he used. And I remember that that word in particular kind of made me laugh. I was like, a heathen, really, what's that? Kind of made me laugh. But what wasn't funny about it was that he himself did not go to church, even on his own time. He himself had never spoken a word about God or Christ to me over the two years of our relationship. And through my time with him, I knew that he was very deeply into sexual sin and into drug use. So when I asked him about those things, I said, you know, why is it such a big deal to you that I don't go to church? Well, you don't go to church. You don't talk about God. You've got these sin issues in your life, so why is this such an issue to you that I don't go to church? And he told me that it didn't matter if he did those things because he could just ask for forgiveness and it would all be okay. And even as a non-Christian, I just saw that as blatant hypocrisy, and I can tell you that that relationship ended very quickly after that. Now, I realize that these examples are probably kind of extreme, but it's what I experienced. And these are things that have, they really formed those six years of my life. They were all so negative, and they left me feeling hurt, and they left me feeling angry, and they left me feeling ashamed. And basically what it came down to is I was hearing time and again what Christians were against, but I was not ever hearing what they were for. I was never hearing about Christ's love. I witnessed so much judgment and hypocrisy, and because of those things, I just never had any desire whatsoever to have any kind of association with Christianity based on those things. So Pastor John talked about that book I picked up on Christian, and as he said, it highlights a study of some young outsiders to the church, but also surveyed some people who were inside the church, the younger generation, And they asked these people to give some words of what the first thing that comes to mind when we talk about Christianity today. And the top four words that were named were judgmental, anti-homosexual, too political, and hypocritical. Now, if I look back on where I was 10 years ago, I absolutely would have agreed with absolutely every one of those words, and I would have had a whole myriad of others to add to that list. And I wish that I could say, since I've been in the church these past eight or so years, that everything looks really different to me, but the reality of it has been that it doesn't look a whole lot different even from the inside. There was a quote I came across just the other week by Mahatma Gandhi, And he says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And doesn't that just say so much in those three sentences? If I think about one thing that the time I spent outside these walls, outside the church, one thing that it taught me is that the way that we as believers present ourselves to those outsiders 
the things we say and the things we do, they just really matter. The way we present ourselves really matters. All areas of our lives. I'm talking about myself here just as much as the rest of you. So we need to think about things like what we post on social media, on Facebook or whatever, take your pick, Twitter. How we engage in political discussions, regardless of if you fall wherever on the spectrum, it doesn't matter. How we engage in politics matters. And the way also that we interact with our coworkers and our friends and our family, it all matters. But especially, I think, the way that we engage with strangers. What I think some of us forget, and even I forget sometimes, is that we are often the only representation of Jesus that some people are ever going to see. And we really need to be careful what we do with that. It's a huge responsibility. So I walked around either indifferent to Christianity or just outright hostile for a good six or seven years of my life. And the big change for me came in late 2007. As is kind of the popular thing these days, I met my husband online. And in the very early getting-to-know-you stages of our relationship, it came out that he was a Christian and that he attended church regularly every Sunday. And I remember that discussion well, because I remember when he told me that, my very first thought was, oh, come on, here we go again. Because I'd been burned in the past, both in relationships and just by Christians in general. And I was really almost ready to just run at that point. But I decided just to engage in that discussion, and I said, you know, here's, here's where I'm at. I am not a Christian. I'm not necessarily saying there is no God, but I don't know about him, and I don't really know what I believe. And then I kind of braced myself, expecting that I was going to get some kind of negative or judgmental response. But he really surprised me that day because he said to me, you know, it's not my job to judge. I'm not here to judge you. But if at any time you ever want to hear about my faith and about God and what Christ has done for me, I'm here. Just let me know. I just remember feeling confused because that was the complete polar opposite of what I had expected to hear. But you know what that did for me? Is it planted a seed and it opened a door and it really got me thinking and wondering and searching. And over the next couple of weeks and the next few months, I kind of started investigating this Christianity thing. So I went to the Christian bookstore, and I talked to the woman behind the counter. I said, you know, I'm just kind of wondering what's this about. What would you recommend as far as the Bible goes? And she uh, got me set up with a one-year Bible, and I started to read it. And I started looking into churches in the area in Fond du Lac where I grew up. I found a church that I liked. I started to go, and I even started going weekly, which is completely opposite of anything that I ever thought I would be doing. But the point is, at some point, I did give my life over to Christ. It makes me wonder, though, how much longer did that take than it needed to? How much longer did it take than it should have just based on some of the interactions I was having with Christians and the negativity and the judgment and the hypocrisy? Would I have come to Christ earlier had those interactions not been so negative? I'm not really sure. But those things really did kind of make me run farther from Jesus. I wanted nothing to do with it based on those things. What I really needed and what I eventually got was for someone to meet me right where I was at at that moment in my life. What I needed was for someone to seek out and to form a relationship with me. And I needed somebody who was going to show me kindness and compassion and love. It just makes me wonder how many people maybe even in this room have either experienced something similar or maybe even going through that right now really makes you think. Now, we're called to share the gospel. I know that's true. That's our job as Christians. But this can't happen outside of true relationship, and I think that's something that all of us forget sometimes. 
If we as Christians are loudly and self-righteously calling out the sins of the people who are outside of the church, if we're ignoring the sins that we have in our own lives and favoring the sins that we see as greater of the people who are outside the church, if we're more concerned with whatever our own particular brand of social or political movement than with reflecting the love of Christ, and if we continue to act like we are somehow superior because of our religion, then we need to be ready because people are going to harden their hearts and they're going to run the other way. And I only know that because I experienced it myself. Now, does this mean that I am saying we are supposed to ignore sin? That is not what I'm saying at all. But as Pastor John said earlier, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict. That's not our job. Based on my own experience, I really feel that a true change of heart happens only in the confines of true relationship. And I'm talking about a relationship where we meet people where they're at right now. A relationship that goes beyond just trying to save their soul. And we need to quit being so afraid to reach out to the people who don't run in our comfortable Christian circles. We need to get outside of our comfort zones, and that's hard. That's why it's outside of our comfort zone. But we all need to get there. And we overall need to be careful not to present ourselves as being any better than anyone else because we're Christians and they're not. Romans tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that all includes me, and that all includes everyone in this room. So moving forward for myself, I just want to be more careful of how I present Jesus to the people that I meet every day, wherever they might be, both through my actions and through my words. I want to be really intentional intentional about meeting people where they're at right now, wherever that might be in their life, not where I think they should be. And I've really realized through my journey that I have, and we all have, a very real ability to either lead people to Jesus or send them running and screaming the other direction. This isn't something that I want to take lightly. It's a big responsibility. So I ask you, what about you? Thanks, Jen, for sharing your heart. So where are we with all this as we conclude? There are things, friends, we should be judging. You should be judging your spiritual leaders. That is a responsibility if you are part of a church to judge the leaders in the sense, in this sense. (laughs) Is their life consistently producing the fruit of the Spirit? Are they walking closely with Jesus? Are your leaders doing that? That's your responsibility to do that. You're also responsibility to judge the teaching of this church. Is the teaching of the church based upon the word of God? That's your responsibility. It's also the responsibility of Jesus' followers to judge other Jesus' followers as long as we do it correctly and our motive is to help them on the right path on track, lovingly, gently moving them back on the right path. I want people to do that in my life. I want to help all of us stay on the right path because we're all prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Right? We need each other. So speaking from my own experience, Christians will unfortunately continue to judge others at times. We all do it. How do I know that? Because you're sitting there looking at me. And there's times I judge others. It's the top sin listed from us. One of the big surprises I had from moving from Bangkok, Thailand to Sheboygan, Wisconsin was the depth of the judgmental spirit in this area. Some of you who have been raised here have normalized it to the point it's now minimized and it's off the radar. 
but coming from the outside, moving into this area, there is a spiritual battle going on here. There's a spiritual stronghold over this area that's not like other parts of the world or other parts of America. This is a sin that I found very strong, deeply rooted in the people that live in this part of the country. Judging others. Legalism. The spirit of the Pharisee. Looking down your nose. I see it, and it still troubles me. But understand, we have to rip that off and say, we're not going to tolerate this. This is not the way Jesus operates. This is not the way Jesus' people follow their master. There is great freedom and great joy in following Jesus, not in judging others, not listening to certain radio stations. There's nothing but condemnation and judgment of other Christians. Whoa. But understand, our sin nature will constantly pull us back into this judgmental, critical spirit. We need to ask God to forgive us individually and collectively as a church so that nothing will hinder his redemptive work that needs to flow through us so that we might touch the life of that person who says, man, when I'm around other Christians, I don't even like being around them. Oy, oof. But to be winsome, to attract people to Jesus because we're in love with him and we're not judging those on the outside. Let God do that. That's his job. But let's love people. But I think we need to start by asking God to forgive us, to forgive us, to forgive me, to forgive our church, to forgive the church of this horrific sin And we can rant and rave about all kinds of other sins, but it's permeated the body of Christ. And we need to be delivered from this. This stronghold needs to be broken. It's identified. You guys said this is the number one sin. It's here. It's among us. So what do we do about it? We just sang the truth about breaking every stronghold, breaking every chain. That's what Jesus does. So I'm going to be quiet for a moment. And I'm going to ask one or two of you to pray and ask God to forgive us and to restore us and to make us more like the Master. But it starts when we repent, when we turn away from the sin and we turn toward God and all that He would have us be, me, you, our church. We're in this together. Let's be freed from this thing. Let's be freed from it. He has the power, and he wants to do it to set us free.